you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Luke. What we do here at Woodland Hills Church is we just do a systematic study of the Word. Nothing too fancy, just go and start at the beginning and go to the end. And so we're now in Luke chapter 4, and we're looking at the temptation narratives. And uh, I'm going to take another pass at this. In fact, I think there's a couple more messages in these temptations. I told you a month ago there's some profound stuff in this temptation uh, story. And so we're just unpacking it, layer upon layer. I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 4 and then down to verse 13. I'm entitling this message, uh, Putting Away Childish Things. Because this message, you'll see, is about growing up. And the message is going to be kind of a mini-message for me, uh, as many as I can get. Uh, and it will be pre preparing the way for us to take communion together uh, towards the end of the service. Here's what it says in Luke. Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And then comes the three different temptations. When the devil had finished all this tempting, and Jesus had uh, refused every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. And here's another verse I'd like us to just think about as I'm going through this message. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When I was a child, I talked like a child. That's what children do. I thought like a child. That's what children do. And I reasoned like a child. That's what children do. But when I became a man, when I became an adult, I put the ways of childhood behind me. There's a time to be an infant. There's a time to be a kid. There's time to be an adolescent. But then there's a time to be a grown-up. And what God's about in this life is growing us up. Growing us up. Now we've been, and that's the theme I'm going to take here, We've been looking at this temptation narrative and seeing how it illustrates for us uh, in a graphic way the kind of warfare that we're always a part of. And we've seen that the main warfare that we deal with is a warfare between the ears. It's the warfare of the mind. I'm going to take a little different angle on it here this morning. And I can get at it by, uh, by, by noting this. Jesus didn't invent, and the early Christians didn't invent the concept of a Messiah. Rather, for several centuries, the Jews had been talking about and theologizing about the Messiah. There was a whole theology built around who they thought uh, the Messiah would be in terms of what the Messiah would do and what the Messiah would accomplish. There was, if you will, a preset mold that the Messiah was supposed to step into. So when Jesus comes into this world and begins to step into the role of the Messiah... There was this preset mold that people expected him to be and that people expected him to do. Uh, the temptation of the devil, all three of these, went after Jesus' identity. And more specifically, they were about trying to get Jesus to fall back into this mold that had been set for him, that he, as it were, inherited when he came into this world. And the temptation is for him to step into this inherited role rather than the true Messiah role that the Father had planned for him. There was a conflict between his inherited Messiah role, what all the people thought he was supposed to do on the one hand, and the role that the Father had for him, the true Messiahship role that the Father had planned for him. And you see it in all the temptations. Uh, the first temptation is to turn uh, stone into bread. And on one level, that's just about Jesus using his special relationship with the Father and his supernatural power to meet his own need. 
But it's also about what kind of Savior is Jesus going to be. It's about the identity of Jesus. The people of the time all expected to have a Messiah who would use his special relationship with God in order to meet the needs of people. Turning stone into bread, for example, feeding people. That's what they expected. What they didn't expect is the Messiah who ultimately would use his special relationship with God to get himself crucified. There was a pull for Jesus to step into the mold that had been set for him, to uh, rely on his inherited identity rather than walk in the fullness of the, the identity and destiny that the Father had for him. The second temptation was for Jesus to grab hold of all the political power in the world, all the authority of the governments of the world. And you see, the people all expected a Messiah who would be a political militant Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would grab hold of all the political authority of the world. They wanted a Messiah who would get the Romans off their back. They wanted a Messiah who would confirm their own political and nationalistic beliefs. People are still looking for that kind of Messiah. That was the, the Messiah role that Jesus inherited. And the, tempt, the, the devil was trying to get him to fall back into that role. What people didn't expect was a Messiah who, far from vanquishing his enemies, would tell his people to love their enemies, even their political and national enemies. They didn't expect that. And they certainly didn't expect a Messiah who would, in the end, allow his enemies to crucify him. Jesus breaks the mold of what a Messiah is supposed to be. Because he's not relying on his inherited identity, he's walking in the identity that the Father had called him to walk in. The third temptation is, uh, centers on the temple. And uh, uh, the people of the time, it's part of the mold that Jesus was supposed to fit, fit into. The people of the time all expected a Messiah who would enter into the temple and in some way, shape, or form put on display in an unambiguous way the truth that he's the Messiah. A Messiah who would convince all Jews and ultimately the entire world that he's the Messiah. And since the temple is the center of the Jewish faith, they thought he'd go into the temple and whether it's throw yourself from a pinnacle and get caught or some other great display, they thought this Messiah would put on display in an unambiguous, unquestionable way his Messiahship. What they didn't expect is a Messiah who would not be as unambiguous as he could. Yes, Jesus did miracles here and there for sure, but they were always done non-strategically, uh, if you will. They, they, they were always done out in the, in the poor counties with the poor people and the marginalized. He never did the miracles when the miracles would have really counted, when he's in the temple, when he's on trial, for example. He doesn't do miracles there. In fact, he hardly even talks there. Jesus breaks the mold of what it is to be a Messiah, but the temptation of the enemy was for Jesus to compromise on his true identity and just fall back on the more convenient inherited identity that the world had already set for him. I am convinced that the enemy's main area of temptation in our life is exactly the same. He goes after our identity. Who are we? What are we called to do? In fact, I'm convinced that every day and maybe even every moment of every day, there is a temptation along these lines. All of us, each and every one of us, when we came into this world, we, were, we came in with a God-given and Christ-purchased identity. You are created in a way that reflects God. You're made in the spit and image of the servant-loving God. You're in the image of God. And you are created with an unsurpassable and unconditional worth. 
And you are created to receive the perfect love of God and to reflect the perfect love of God back to God, reflected to yourself, and to reflect it to all, all others. That's part of your God-created, Christ-purchased identity and part of your God-created, Christ-purchased destiny. And you are created to do that in a unique way, not just one of the crowd. There's only one of you in all of history that is made. You are called to reflect the beauty and the love and the grace of God in an altogether unsurpassably unique way. And you are called and created to and destined to be with God and, and reflect that love and grace throughout all eternity. That's who you really are. You may not believe that right now. You may not be experiencing that right now. But what's true about you is that who you really are is the you that God created. You have a God-created identity. What's also true is that you have an inherited identity. You didn't inherit this identity from God. You inherited it from the world. There is a mold that was created for you by the world that you're supposed to be and supposed to live out. We, in the process of growing up in this fallen world, we receive all sorts of messages and all sorts of tapes and all sorts of interpretations that we internalize that are all about who we are, what our worth is, what our value is, what our destiny is. And it's not that everything the world tells you is wrong, but it's never altogether true. It never is, 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 is accurate altogether in terms of your God-created identity. The messages that you inherit from uh, the world in one way or another, compromise the truth that you're in the image of God and that you have an unsurpassable and unconditional worth, and so on and so on. And it may be a message that you inherited primarily from mom. It's a, it's a mom-given, uh, a mom-inherited uh, identity. Or it could be a dad-inherited identity. Or it could be a rape-inherited identity. Or a poverty-inherited identity. Uh, or a performance-inherited identity. Or a religious-inherited uh, identity. Uh, it can come from a million different ways. A media-inherited identity. But in this world, there is what Paul calls the pattern the pattern of this world. And it bombards our brain continually from the time we're born. And we inherit it. We don't choose it. We just inherit it. And when it gets internalized, we start living it out. And that's how we see ourselves, and that's how we see the world. I was uh, yesterday speaking at a men's breakfast, and they had a guy testify before I got up to speak. And, and, and he, his testimony was a classic example of a person living out a uh, world-inherited identity, an inherited identity rather than a God-given identity. This man tells about how when he was a kid, he noticed very early on that he got major kudos for doing good in sports. And when he didn't do good in sports, he got questionable looks and, and comments, and, and it's like kind of off, and, and there's this negativity there. And so he concluded at a very early age that, that his worth is wrapped up in his, his athletic performance, and uh, that uh, it, it's all about achieving his value before other people, getting people's approval. He's got to be a success. So as he grows up, he first tries his hand at sports, and, and that didn't quite work out that well. So he transfers all that success programming into his business. And like so many people in this world, men and women in, the, in, in our culture anyways, he becomes uh, an overachieving workaholic always living out this inherited identity that he had. And he, and he almost drove his marriage into the ground and almost drove himself into the ground. But praise God, God intervened and saved him and saved his marriage, and that was his testimony. But it's a classic illustration of, of what happens to us. We inherit this identity. Some of us inherit a success identity, but there's a lot of other kinds of identity you can inherit. Mine was the opposite of his. I had a brother who was a super success, 
And I could never quite match that. And so I went a different route. A different mold was created for me. I was the one who rebelled against the successful. I was the one who was defiant of authority. I was the one who, who would never go along with the authorities' program. I became a rebel. But it was also just another way of me getting life. You can have success identities. You can have failure identities. You can have oppressing identities. You can have victimization identities. You can have religious identities. You can have anti-religious identities. You can have the identity that says you get life and worth by how pretty you are or how sexy you are. You can get life and worth by how rich you are, the kind of house you, you own, and the kind of car you drive. There's a million different ways of having a false identity, but they all have this in common. With each one comes a particular strategy for getting life, a false way of getting life, a false way of getting worth, a false way of getting value. And we internalize these things and we live them out and the tapes roll and we spend our life like a rat on a treadmill chasing after a worth that God has already given to us for free. There's a conflict between, amen, there's a conflict between your God-given Christ-purchased identity and your uh, uh, inherited identity. And the goal of life, after, after we're saved and, and God's given us a new nature and, and made all things new, the goal of our life now, the primary goal, is to grow out of our inherited identity and to grow into our God-given, Christ-purchased identity. To be putting off the lies and to put, be, be manifesting the truth. Putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And God is perpetually at work in our lives to teach us that. Growth is a part of the life process, a central part of the life process. Waking up to the truth of who you are. Self-discovery centered on Christ is, is, is a central part of the goal of the whole thing. And I'm convinced that every day and maybe even every moment of every day, the God of unsurpassable love surrounds you and is trying to get you to wake up. And he'll use every event in your life, even the cataclysmic failures of your life, the monumental blow at times in your life, he'll use those to wake you up, to teach you, to grow you, to put off lies and to put on truth. It's a lifelong process, I'm convinced. Which is why if you're 76 years old and you're hearing this message and you're still working on stuff, don't get discouraged. Just join the crowd. It's an ongoing thing. We're always in the process. We should always be in a process of self-discovery. And the discovery is about who we are truly because we're made in the image of God and because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's a lifelong process. I am myself amazed at how resilient how resilient this inherited identity can be. It just sticks around, doesn't it? Uh, uh, I've been a Christian now for 32 years. 32 and a half years. I'm old. Uh, but I really thought that by now I would have it all together. Uh, you know, that I just really thought it'd be a little farther along. Do you ever get like that? It's like, oh, wow. And once in a while, now granted, I'm very, very righteous. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> once in a while, there all of a sudden will pop up something very, very ugly. And I'm actually, I look at it, it's like, is that still on some level hanging around? I, I had something happen to me this last week. And I am going to tell you that I, I really fought God about sharing this one because I really didn't want to. I offered him three other better analogies. And, <laughs> and, and, and he, uh, he pretty much said, no, 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 you're missing the point, dude. Uh, because this one is frankly embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, it, 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 we can be so petty. 
but I guess that's the point. I think the Lord wanted me to share it in order to give us all permission to be outlawed with our pettiness because I think we all, on some level, can be kind of petty, right? Oh, I'm alone up here, am I? Uh, no, no, that's just you. You're still the loser up there. Uh, we, so here's what it is. We, we don't get life from how we appear, right? So this is a good model for how not to get life from what people think about you because this one is embarrassing. I get this mailing. I get this mailing, and it's about books. And in this uh, mailing, selling books, it has the top 50 Christian books, uh, according to this publisher or this, this agency, that were written in the year 2006. And I read this top 50 books, and I find I'm getting kind of irritated. Uh, now, in fact, initially, I didn't know I was getting irritated by this list. I, does this ever happen to you? I, I read the list and, and uh, put it aside, didn't think anything about it. But then throughout the day, I'm finding I'm kind of irritated. I just kind of got an edge. It's like, why am I, you know, he's, he's, what, what, what's with that? Now, as you know, I believe that a central part of discipleship is being a detective of your own brain. So when I find that there's this ungodly something or other, you got to trace it back. Where's this coming from? And I know it's about something I'm doing in my head. What's going on in my head is I'm seeing that, that publisher's list, and it's ticking me off. Now, there's two things that tick me off about this, this top 50 Christian books. Okay, on the one hand, I'm just bugged because while there are some good books on there, so far as I can see, there's some stuff that looks like real trash. I mean, it's just trashy theology. Christianizing American values. How Jesus can help you get a little bit richer and a little bit this or that or the other thing. And that stuff bugs me. A lot of it's just, just kind of been there, done that, a thousand other books just like it. This kind of blah, blah, blah stuff you get. And the stuff that bugs me the most is this stuff, and some, you know, some, this might bug some of you, but deal with it. Uh, <laughs> do we really need four more books about the end times? I'm just wondering. Uh, you know, it, it's like, uh, all this, honestly, it's, sometimes people treat the Bible like it was a tarot card, and they're trying to divine the future and get all the details of the future and spend all this inordinate amount of time trying to figure out all these details and whatnot. And the people who write these books sometimes get very, very rich because a lot of people read these books. But I'm thinking, you know what, just trust God. It will all pan out in the end, and don't sweat the details. You know, it's like, let's, let's get around... Here's your eschatology. Live today like it was your last day. That's all you need to know. You know, the, the details of how you're going to die or the world's going to end are going to take care of themselves. So there's four books on this top 50 list, and it irritates me. Now, there's also something else that's irritating me. Oh, see, yeah, forget you guys. You know, it was, this was supposed to be a surprise. Okay, I wasn't on the stupid list. I told you it was embarrassing. What's really embarrassing is that that didn't surprise you that I'd be ticked off about that. <laughs> I am such a... Okay, well... See, there's something... It's bugging me. If I'm honest with myself, and I don't want to be honest with myself. We usually don't want to be honest with ourselves. But if I'm honest with myself to get the core of this, I, I'm bugged because my stuff's good stuff. I got some good theology and no one's buying it. <laughs> Okay, so, that's my plug. Now, what I know is that, what I know is that, uh, that when there is this, this a part of your, yourself, a part of your brain that's not in conformity with Christ, 
there's something going on there. We have to be detectives of our own brain. So I, I want to investigate this. What is behind this? How can I possibly be bugged by that? And what I find as I, as I do my inner work, and this is how it works for me. It doesn't work like for everybody like this, but, but I, I, I usually see pictures and hear words. And so I'm doing this inner work saying, Lord, what is this that's giving me this edge, this pettiness, this kind of judgment about this? What is that? Because I know it's not of you. What I find is once again, I'm seeing a little boy. It's little Greggy. And little Greggy is saying, no fair! This little tiny kid going, no fair. And what he's saying no fair about is he doesn't feel he gets equal time with dad. He doesn't feel he gets equal attention from dad. And this, by the way, is not about my dad because I think my dad went out of his way to try to be fair. But this is how a little four or five or six-year-old is interpreting dad. And I was always feeling shortchanged. My sisters, I think, would have a real legitimate complaint because, uh, you know, girls' activity just did not rate in dad's radar the way guys' activity did. But I was competing with a superstar brother, and I always feel, felt so changed. And there's a little kid that I've dealt with a whole lot. I thought I was over this. This little kid is still whining about this. No fair. And right after that, I hear another word as I'm doing this inner work. It's a little bit older voice, but it says, you're insignificant. You're a nobody. Dad's attention determines what your significance is, and you're a nobody. And as I explore it a little further, I get words like this. Uh, your name never gets mentioned on the loudspeakers in the school classrooms. You're never the hero. You're never the superstar. You don't score the touchdowns, and you don't have any trophies on the wall. What you have on the wall is an arrest certificate. Uh, what you are is always a disappointment. No wonder you don't get the attention, and that's why your life is insignificant. Just like that. Now, I am a 32-year-old Christian, and I know my identity in Christ, and I know my worth in Christ, and, and, I, you know, I, and I've made great progress. But under the right triggers, the right circumstance, boom, this little kid pops up. And see, while the adult knows the good news, the little kid doesn't. At least that part of the, that little narrow net kid didn't know the good news. And so the job is to bring integration. And now God, and I'm surprised at this. I'm, I'm, I'm sure, like, that is still around. That is amazing. And I think it's around for a lot of us. If, if it's not about books, it's because, you know, you don't have the house that you thought you'd have or someone else got the attention that you wanted to get or someone else got the award that you wanted to get. We all have that. And the little kid who's still craving attention is back there. And that creates an emotion that gives a judgment in our life. Whenever you find judgment in your life, trace it back, and there's going to be some wound and some ungodly, uh, deceptive lies th that you've internalized. Now, God doesn't come to us and say, you know, shame us and say, what kind of a Christian are you? 32 years old, Boyd, I thought you would have been grown up by now. That's not his style. His style is wonderful, a teaching opportunity, a further healing opportunity, a further self-discovery opportunity, a further chance to put off that thing that you inherited, that mold that you inherited, that whiny little self that you inherited, and walk more thoroughly and consistently in the God-given identity that you have. And so, so what I always do is I, I go to the Lord and I, I, when I locate the source of the lie and it's represented in a memory or a picture, however it gets represented, I just bring it before the Lord and I say, Lord, uh, reveal the lie and reveal the truth. As I'm doing this inner work in prayer and I have a little bit of music in the background, what happens? And again, there's a million different ways the Holy Spirit works on us. Here's how it happens with me. I, I, I get a picture of this little boy. And this little boy was always creating stuff, nonsense stuff. I would make gadgets and stuff that didn't have a purpose or didn't have a meaning, but I thought they were very ingenious, and I'd give them to people and expect them to be impressed with it. Uh, you know, I'd tie sticks around strings and all sorts of stuff. It was just, you know, very creative, but not to really any point. <laughs> uh, but I was always creating stuff. 
Well, I made my dad this thing. I spent some time making my, uh, this thing for my dad where I had a bunch of rubber bands and I kind of tied them together and I wrapped them around popsicle sticks all, all the way down. And I put in a couple pens, whatever I could find that would stick in there. So I had this, this, this uh, you know, about 10 rubber bands and things stuck in there. And at the bottom of the rubber bands, I put this heating pad. I just found it somewhere. So I, I, it was like a water heating pad. And I, and I tied, I, I connected it to the bottom. That gave it weight. And so I had kind of a yo-yo. And, and when it would go up, all the popsicle sticks would click together, which I just thought was ingenious. Click, 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 and it would go out. And click, 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 click. I was so proud of this. So I, I get finished with it, and I bring it to my dad. Now, my dad was watching news. And again, this isn't about my dad. He was a great guy. But he's watching the news, and he's, he's kind of paying attention there. So I bring it to him, and I say, Dad, look what I created. This is all this memory that I'm, I'm going through. Uh, and I, you know what? It's been decades since I've thought about this thing. But who, it pops up right here. And in this memory, I, I go to my dad, and I give him this thing. I said, Dad, look what I created. And he looks and goes, oh, that's nice, Greg. And then he turns back and watches the television. And I, then I try to get a little more attention. Thing. Look what it can do. Look what it can do. He goes, oh, th th that's good, Greg. Hang on a second. And he's watching the news. And I try different ways just to try to get a little bit more out of him. You know, I'm hungry for some worth, and, and it really isn't coming. And then after a couple minutes, a commercial comes on, and he gets up and leaves. And he leaves my gadget there, my thing there. And my heart's broken. It's like, I, I, I remember the sorrow. It's like, he, he didn't like it. He didn't like it. But I convinced myself maybe it's just because he didn't look carefully enough. So I, 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 I want to show him it a little bit more. And so I pick it up, and I'm running around the house looking for Dad. But Dad had gone out. I didn't know where he went, and I couldn't find him. And my heart was broken. And see, that's where that no fair thing comes from. Why? There's still a little part of me, that inherited identity, that's craving dad's attention. All healing is about inviting the Lord of truth into the lies and having him transform it. And the Lord can't change the past, but he does change the meaning of the past. And so I invite Jesus into this, and the Lord shows me uh, what he would do in that situation, because the Lord was present there. Uh, the, the, the reality is that I'm now getting my mind to line up with what is true. And so Jesus comes into this, and my dad had just left the room, and I'm brokenhearted, and the Lord comes over, and, uh, and the way I do it is I can always see the Lord's face, and I, I look up, and I'm a little four-year-old boy, five-year-old boy, and I look up, and, and there's Jesus, and he picks this up, and he starts going like this, and he's fascinated by it, just fascinated by it. Like, Whoa! And, and he goes, what is it? And I go, I don't know. I, I don't know. You're the creator. I mean, you, you, you know. I didn't say that. No, I, I added. I'm embellishing here. Um, but I go, I don't know. And then Jesus says, why? It's a gravity gadget. <laughs> and the little voice like going, gravity gadget, that sounds really important. And I feel such worth. I got all of his attention. And he's just marveling at the creativity of this little kid. You see? And in doing all of that, he, he's evangelizing that part of my old inherited identity that hadn't yet quite gotten the good news. And he's restoring me, and he's, he's reversing the lie and bringing it into conformity with truth. And every time we do stuff like that, you see, a little bit of that, a little bit of that inherited identity has just died now. And I'm a little bit more walking in my God identity. So there'll be a little less inclination for that thing to get triggered now and, and for that whiny self to come out. That's how the Lord re redeems us. It's all part of our looking at the beauty of God and the glory of God, the verse I mentioned earlier during the worship set, where we're transformed as we gaze upon his beauty. 
He displays his beauty over and against the particular things in our brain, in our memories, in our fantasy, or whatever. He shows his truth and beauty against all of those and then changes them, and we're redeemed. God is always in the process of growing us, if we'll let him. The enemy wants to keep us immature. The enemy wants us to keep us in the bondages and the chains of our inherited identity. But God wants to set us free. And layer upon layer, he wants to reveal what the lie is so that he can reveal what the truth is to get us unstuck. We're always supposed to be growing. We're always supposed to be you know, progressing in our self-awareness, in our, in our walking in the truth of what God has set us free to walk in. And it's a lifelong thing. I know there are groups, a lot of groups out there, who, who sort of believe that, uh, you know, the minute you're, you become a Christian, all of a sudden everything is wonderful, and you don't talk about struggles or talk about problems or pettiness any longer. They're, they're, they're sort of the, the hyper-saved, hyper-spiritual, ha- hyper-happy, hyper-victorious, I got no problems because I have arrived crowd. But, you know, Paul tells me that, that he was yet striving uh, in, in, in the New Testament, and if Paul hadn't yet quite arrived, I don't feel too bad by me not quite having arrived yet. And, and God bless those folks, and, you know, they're sincere, but be careful if, if, if you're hanging out with that crowd, because I'm convinced they're in massive denial. <laughs> and they're, they're just suppressing all the real struggles in their life. Life, it's a growing process. If you're alive, you're supposed to be growing. And it's all about growing in likeness to Christ. Growing, letting go of the inherited identity in order to move into your, God, your God-given and Christ-purchased identity, it can be scary. Because you're used to that old identity. Maybe it's making you miserable, but at least it's familiar. And, and it can be quite scary. Uh, you're stepping out in the unknown. It may be that the only way you've ever known how to get worth is by being that pretty, sexy person or by being that successful person or rich person or bad person, whatever. That's the only form of life you've really known. And to let go of it makes you feel insignificant. It makes you f- afraid. But I can promise you this. Yes, it's scary. But it is worth it. It is worth it. You don't know what you're missing by hanging on to this petty inherited self. Uh, It's suppressing aspects of of who you truly are as we let ourselves indulge in these false ways of getting life. Let it go. Give it up to move into the truth of who you are. It can be not only scary, but it, it, it can be very painful. Because that old inherited self as miserable as it maybe it makes you be, and as wrong as you know it is, as petty as it is, it can be like an old friend. You can be in love with this, especially if it's worked pretty well for you. So to kill it, and this is what Jesus means when he says, die to yourself. To kill it can be very, very painful. It feels like you're slaying an old friend. It can be painful in other ways as well. If you really grow, and you're in process on this, it may be that you'll lose friends. Because every, and some of you know this from experience, every social system that you're a part of is predicated on who you were. And when you change, you upset the whole system. Dysfunctional families, if one person gets healthy, man, they don't like that healthy person. It just doesn't work any longer. You know, it's, we, we don't have the fun we used to have. Uh, there was a, a lady who goes to the church here who several years ago was in a different, very religious environment. And uh, uh, somehow she got a hold of the Love uh, and the Knowledge of Good and Evil series that we did a year on. And she started listening to these tapes. And God used them to set her free from religion. I mean, she really got it. The coin dropped in the slot. And, and, and she began to really see the wrong of living in this judgment. She began to just love all people at all times and all places. And, and, and she began to, you know, uh, get rid of that, get freed from the addiction of contrasting yourself and comparing yourself with others to give yourself worth at their expense. 
And she began to see her own sin as being a two-by-four and other people's sin as being a mere dust particle. And she began to experience the joy of living in this outrageous love and this servant mindset rather than this moralizing mindset. Her religious friends hated it. I mean, they saw her as just this wishy-washy compromiser who's not standing for God. They began to say stuff about her, what the Pharisees said about Jesus. You know, that, that you're just not towing the line here. Because see, they're getting life from, from contrasting themselves with others. However imperfect we are, at least we're not like that. And when she started equalizing all sin, uh, they didn't like that. She was, she was assaulting their sacred cow. And she ended up losing all of those friends. But God had new friends for her. My point is that it can be very, very painful. It can be scary and it can be painful. Growing often is. Jesus got himself crucified because he wouldn't fit into the mold of other people's expectation. And something like that may be true of, of, of you as well. But again, I can tell you it will be worth it. A million times worth it. You, the, the, in this God created, Christ-purchased identity is the fullness of joy and the fullness of peace. It's who you really are and it's what you're destined to be. This is what life is all about. The person who knows who they really are and is, and, and is in congruity with that is the freest person on the planet. Because you're not addic addicted to the petty idols. Your, your, your moods and, and, and attitudes and behaviors no longer are determined by what goes on outside of you. It's determined by your relationship with God and all of your life and all of your source and all of your worth and all of your value is derived from Calvary and from nothing else. Let it go. Let it go in order to manifest the new self, the true self, the God-created, Christ-purchased self that you have in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful Lord. 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 Uh, the worship uh, band will continue to uh, lead in worship. Um, the altar is still open. If you don't know the Lord uh, this morning, stop by at our visitor's table and someone be, would love to explain to you just how easy that is to become part of this kingdom. Lord, as we go out of this place, your word to us today has been to grow, to always be growing, to take every life experience and to grow by it, to learn by it, to be transformed by it. Thank you, God, for just invading us, surrounding us, and it, taking everything in our life, even the cataclysmic failures, and using it, Lord God, to prepare us for the kingdom that's coming. As we go out of here, Lord, may we, Lord, receive more perfectly and reflect more perfectly your love to be kingdom people, to spread your kingdom to all people at all times. Wake us up, Lord. Help us to be mindful. Help us to always be discovering the truth that sets us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. The altar's still open. God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom. the foot of the cross where grace and suffering meet you have shown me your love through the judgment